Would you agree with me that the uh, Christian brand is, uh, is taking a hit in the marketplace, that, that, are, that we, we have some image problems out there? If you've been following along at all in social media or the news networks or whatever, the word evangelical right now is not really the kind of term that you want to sort of attach to yourself. We are viewed out there for the most part in terms of our brand, in terms of our image, uh, as if we are racist, we are violent, we are angry, we are homophobic, we're just generally whiny and not nice people. The word evangelical right now is really, really taking a hit. I think it might be time to perhaps change uh, our brand, uh, at least in the labeling, but more importantly, when the world is looking at us like this, maybe we need to take a look at ourselves and ask the question, are we really representing the brand Jesus Christ very well? Because if we're not, if we have an image problem, if Christians have an image problem, that means that the gospel of Jesus Christ that we're proclaiming has an image problem, and ultimately, it means that the Christ who we are representing is going to have an image problem by the fact that he's connected to us. Now, this is not a new problem. It's not like this is just cropped up, uh, this whole idea of Christians having an image problem. In fact, uh, most people love to go to an old uh, statement, an old soundbite by uh, the Prime Minister of India a, couple of, a generation ago by the name of Mahatma Gandhi, who in fact stated this, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now that's a, that's a stinging indictment of Christianity. And um, for years, of course, that soundbite has been used to make Christians feel bad about themselves. And in some ways, it's fine. We probably deserve it. Although I must quickly say that Mahatma Gandhi wouldn't know a Christian or a true Christian if he fell over one. And nor would he know the true reality of Christ if he fell over him. Mahatma Gandhi had a vision of Christ that he created in his own mind of how he actually should be without actually knowing who Christ really is. But nevertheless, we should take note of what the world is thinking and how we are representing our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are coming to the conclusion of our series in Hebrews. And we have been loading each other up with all kinds of doctrine, all kinds of theology. One thing that's very important, of course, as the preacher gets to the sort of the end of his sermon, he's bringing his conclusions, and we're going to be looking there in Hebrews chapter 13, is he's going to take and bundle up all of that theology that we've learned, all of the realities of who Christ is and what Christianity is all about. We now are pretty loaded up with the theory of Christianity, the theology of Christianity, but right doctrine and right theology is always supposed to lead to right living. And so as he brings to conclusion, as virtually all of the epistles or all of the letters in the New Testament... They load us up with theology, the reason, uh, what we are supposed to believe, and then at the end of it, it takes us in a journey to the practical, so what, now what, of our theology. 
It would appear by the criticisms leveled against us in the marketplace that in some ways we might have in our heads the right things to believe, but somehow it's not transferring into our lives so that what people are seeing in how we live is appealing to them. Now, don't get me wrong. A Christian living a Christ-committed life is always going to face criticism wrongfully. And I'm not talking about that today. I'm talking about criticism we face that we deserve because we haven't been living the Christ life uh, from the inside out. So today we want to invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. And um, as we bring this to a conclusion, we've divided the last two chapters in uh, two parts. Uh, because it was way too much to consume. It could have been three parts or ten parts, actually, as I've discovered. But we're going to try to do it in two parts. So this week and next week. And this week we're looking at living the Christian life inside out. In other words, uh, from inside the church, from inside our hearts, to the outside, to outsiders of the faith, what should they see in our lives? At the same time, these are truisms, practical truisms for how we ought to be living the Christian life. And then next week, we'll look at living the Christian life uh, on the inside, on the inside of the church. What should we be doing inside? So um, having said that, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, I want to read for you the first six verses. Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the, all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So into this dog pile mess of a world we live in, the Holy Scriptures are inviting us here with a picture of humanity at its very best. Christianity lived authentically is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so this presentation to us here is to take all of that theology that you know, all of what you know about Christ and who he is and what Christianity means, what Jesus has done for you, and recognizing that the Holy Spirit has now moved into your life and empowered you to live a different way, here's the way you should live. Here's the way you can live. Here's the way you must live. That's the call here this morning. We are called to transfer God's grace, the free gift of salvation that has been given to us for God's glory, that God might be, might be glorified, might be made manifest in our lives in this self-absorbed world we live so that they may criticize us for glorifying Christ and that's fine. But may they not criticize us for our misrepresentation of him. So with that in mind, um, there are, are a, a couple of introductory realities before we jump into the text today. I want to look at five different ethics 
which all, by the way, could be a series in themselves, but so we'll just touch on them. But they're important to, to at least touch on. And there are two empowering realities. Before we dive into this, there are two empowering realities that sort of help us to launch into this with confidence. And, and the first is this. There's a thread that runs throughout the, the sermon uh, of the, the book of Hebrews. Uh, first of all, uh, we, we have investigated those kinds of threads that have run through. And one of them that, that continues to be a subject that goes through all of the Hebrews is today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And there's another thread that runs throughout the book of Hebrews, and that is that the expectation of how to live out this theology is going to be predicated on your connection to the body of Christ. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, says that we are to, to gather together or to encourage each other to, it, that today so that we don't harden our hearts. Uh, we get over to Hebrews chapter 10, and it says, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as some of you are in the habit of doing. But in fact, all the more come together as you see the day approaching, um, that you might stimulate one another to good works and, and love for one another. And so there's this, this thread that works its way through that says... This stuff is not easy to do by yourself. Even as you have the empowerment of Christ, you have, are in a battle with your flesh and with the devil, and you better be soundly connected in community so you can have help, so that people can check out what's going on in your life, and so that when they see you downcast, they can call on you and encourage you so that when you leave the gathering of the people, uh, those on the outside will see the hope that you have and ask you about it as opposed to you being downcast. So there's, so there's simply put, um, we, we are called on in re reaching the effectiveness starts by being connected inside firmly to the body of Christ. White hot worship. Secure in the truth, um, your place in Christ, connected to believers who are watching out for you, cared for and cared about. Critical to all of this being healthy in your lives. But secondly, so from the inside, this must function in, in community. But secondly, there's a really huge reason why the, the preacher of Hebrews at the end of verse 5 pulls out this <clears throat> consistent promise of God, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. This stuff is not going to be easy to do and it certainly can't be done in your own strength. And so the promise here is not only should this be done in, co in concert with community, connected to community, but it has to be done by faith. Uh, Christianity is not a a make-work project for your self-will. It's not, it's not a get-better-by-your-own-strength kind of idea. Christianity is the real, genuine belief and trust and commitment in a God who says, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will help you, so don't be afraid. It is... Absolutely imperative that we launch on this from everything that he said in Hebrews is beloved to his congregation. This is by faith. Amen. You need to know that when you are, are exhorted to do something that is 
past and beyond your abilities or your personality or your practice to this point that the God you claim to know and love if you are invested in him and he has actually come into your life so that you have a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And what that means is, is when you are embarking upon obeying the Lord, he is going to strengthen you and empower you and help you to do what you would otherwise throw your hands up and say, I can't do this. But by the same token, when you become tempted to rebel against the Lord, he is also there. You can walk away from this community. You can get uh, away from this congregation and go and hide in a corner somewhere and think, well, I'm away from everybody so they don't know how I'm living. But I'm telling you what, you're taking Jesus with you everywhere you go. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus comes with you. And that's a, both a motivating reality and also a warning reality. Jesus will help you, but Jesus is also looking over your shoulder. So think about how you're living. So we, by faith, believe in his accompanying presence to strengthen us and his enduring help. And he says at the end of it, what can man do to me? Plenty. Man can do plenty to me, right? <laughs> but in comparison to our acknowledging that the Lord of glory, every moment of our lives, is not leaving us and not forsaking us and promising to help us so that we won't be afraid, what really can man do to me? So with that, we launch into some truth about how Jesus is able to make, help us make a difference in our life and live differently when we <clears throat> are outside of the church and when we leave the theological lecture hall. When we take all of this and we say, so what now? How should I live? That's what we're looking at here. And there are five Christian ethics here under two categories today. I'm going to give more attention, and I'm going to watch the clock carefully, more attention to the fourth and the fifth ethic today. So you may be frustrated with how fast we go through the first three, but they're not really hard to understand, and I think it's pretty obvious. From a right relationship with Christ comes, and right doctrine comes right living. If you want to get in line with the gospel, then he tells us here how we're supposed to live, and the first is this. The first category is through heart-expanding care for others. As Christians, we're to be specialists in expanding our hearts as God expands our hearts to care for others. And the first three verses are really talking about that. They're not surprises to us, but they may be areas in which we're lagging or not paying attention or avoiding and so I bring them to your attention again because he has. First of all, we're to keep on loving each other. We're to keep on loving each other as brothers. There's a couple of things I want to point out here. We're, we're to nurture our love for those born again from the same seed, the same womb, by using our blessings to bless each other. Now, I just want to point out here, he doesn't say um, 
love each other as brothers. He says, keep on loving. In other words, this is something that comes with the reality of becoming a Christian. When, if you have a true life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ and Christ actually moved into your life, then something else moved into your life with him because God is love. And that God moved into our lives. So he's not saying you should generate something that you don't have. I want you to nurture something that I already gave you. This should be your new nature. This is your new DNA. The word here, of course, is adelphos, brother, the Greek word. And the adelphos, the, the root, root word of the adelphos idea is uh, from the same womb. That's who brothers are. And by the way, sisters out there, you're part of this thing called brothers. So brothers and sisters, we are, if we are Christians, we are from the same womb, we are womb mates because we have been born again by the same seed. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. And the seed is the word of God. We are actually really, from God's perspective, family. We are the global family. It has nothing to do with nationality, nothing to do with race, uh, creed, tongue, any of that stuff. It has everything to do with the fact that if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been born again, your DNA is divine, and you are now, therefore, of the same womb. We are brothers and sisters, really brothers and sisters. We really are. And therefore, we are called upon to keep loving as brothers and sisters should. This love is, is the new actual natural feeling that we should have for one another. Read James 2, 15 to 17. Uh, read 1 Corinthians 13. Before you start talking about a brother or sister, uh, you ought to run your eyes by 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 in the definition of love before you say anything about anybody who's in the Christian family. Now, I don't really think I have to tell you much more about that, but Matthew 24, 12 tells us when love for your brothers and sisters grows cold, it means there's sin in the house. And I'm not talking about this house, although I can say it about this house, but I'm talking about this house. If you're saying to me, I, you know, I can't handle Christians, I can't stand Christians, then I'm saying, then you babe, maybe better look in your own life. Maybe there's some sin in your own house. Next he says, um, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, I know when you read over that, you're like, oh, I can't wait till he talks to us about that phrase, entertaining angels without knowing it. That's what I really want to know about. That's not the point of this text. The point of this text is entertaining strangers. Don't let your eyes run to that so quickly. Entertain strangers. Of course, he had in mind an Old Testament event. Do you know what the preacher of Hebrews was thinking of? What was the Old Testament event he was thinking of? Anybody know? Abraham. Abraham and the three visitors, Yes. 
I, we won't take the time. Genesis 18, Abraham's sitting there. Sarah and Abraham, they're well past childbearing age. I mean, they're post, post, post menopausal. You know what I'm talking about? They are so far post menopausal that, that it's like to the 10th degree. They're not having kids. And God has promised them to have kids. I mean, he's 99, she's 90, 89 or whatever. It's like, it's not happening for us. And there he is sitting in his tent on a hot day and three people show up. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Abraham, I'm there pouting saying God's not uh, fulfilling his promise. These three people are walking by. Get your own food. Get your own shelter. I don't need any. But no, he jumps to his feet and, and brings them to it and, and, and basically says to them, can I have the honor of serving you and, and, and gives them food and gives them drink and gives them shelter. He doesn't even know who they are. It just so happens that we find out that he's entertaining the Lord and two angels. And they changed his life. The Lord changed his life at that moment, advancing the cause of, of, of God in his life. So the point is here, uh, an act of ministry to this stranger is like an act to Jesus himself. Go out of your way to be hospitable to people in need. Uh, you never know how far-reaching the effects will be. You might entertain an angel. You might entertain just an, an average, ordinary person who advances some great cause for Christ, and you were a cog in that wheel. And Jesus, by the way, in Matthew 25, 40 says, I want you all to know something like this. Whenever you give a cup of cold water to someone in my name, it's as if you're giving it to me. You know, if Jesus walked in the room this, this morning, uh, we'd be falling all over ourselves to get to him so we could be the first to ask him to go to lunch with us. We'd be fighting with each other. I'm going to see Jesus. Wouldn't we? We should be clamoring over a stranger. Because it's the same as if Jesus walked into the room. At least that's how I read the Bible. And then he says to us, remember those in prison as if you were fellow prisoners and those who mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Get good at putting your heart and feelings in the messy places of others. This is holy empathy. This, is, this new life in Christ will give you the raw material of empathy and nurture it. Remember those in prison. Look, this was a time of great persecution in this congregation. They were thinking about bailing. Why were they thinking about it? Because many of them were possibly going to lose their job. They were going to lose their livelihood. Many of them were looking at the prospects of being thrown in prison. They needed to know that the authentic reality of Christ in the congregation was going to step forward and take care of their family, that they needed to know that if they stood faithful for Christ and were hauled off to prison, that the congregation wouldn't abandon the care of their family. And, and beloved, you know, we've been living in sweet times, but those times are coming to an abrupt close. These kinds of things are going to become more and more critical to us as the years go by. We're going to have to depend on the love we have for each other more than we have ever had to depend on it before. We, we're going to have to know that, 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 that you've got my back and I've got your back. We're going to have to know that we, we empathize with each other and it's as if we were being thrown in prison. The prospects for an easy life were very unlikely for them and they're going to become less and less, they're going to become more and more unlikely for us as well. 
Christianity doesn't lift us out of the mess of life. What it does is puts us in a community that loves us and plants us in the center of a big-hearted group of people who care. That's the difference. That's what theology is supposed to do in our lives. That's what an indwelling presence of Jesus is all about. This is the new normal for us. This is not abnormal. We're not looking at this text saying, oh my goodness, this is like world-class Christianity. I'll never reach this. This is normal Christianity. This is the kind that we should be criticized for. If we're to be criticized for anything, let's be criticized for living like this. So, through heart-expanding care of others, robust love, radical hospitality, risk-taking empathy, that's who we are. But then he goes on to two other things. Marriage and money. So now I'm going to be stepping. I'm calling these our closest concerns. Through our heart-expanding care, we model the glory of God. But through sin-proofing our closest concerns, marriage and money, I'm I'm just calling them what I think they are, These are our closest concerns, among them at least. We're also to model the glory of God. If our theology means anything, it has to mean something in the very practical reality of our life in our house, in our home, with our family. Um, Kevin DeYoung, who pastor turned professor, writer, tweeted this week, this, it is almost impossible to be happy in life if you are unhappy in marriage. Anybody give me a shout out for that one? You don't actually want to say anything, do you? I understand that. You're sitting beside that person who's making your life so miserable. Because we all know if mama ain't happy, ain't no one happy. I think he's totally right. It is almost impossible to be happy in life if our marriage is a place of unhappiness. So how important is this stuff? How important is this stuff? And in terms of money, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10 and says this to him, the love of money, not money, The love of money is the root of all evil. You know that verse. What kind of evil? Cheating, lying, stealing, murder. But most of us don't keep reading that verse. Do you know what else it says as it continues to go on? The love of money is the root of all evil. And many... Many have wandered from the faith. How how big a deal is it that we get our marriage right and our money right? How big a deal? It's of eternal importance. Because marriage, you see, is an illustration of God's, God's commitment to His covenant with us in salvation. It's an earthly illustration of the promise God makes to us. 
so the culture out there has every right to call us to question and credibility when our statistics aren't any better than theirs. God should be able to do something better for you or why do I need him at all? I'm not saying this to make, I know, I know in the congregation we've, we've had failure. I get it. The, the great news is God is gracious, forgiving, grows us, helps us, moves us from where we failed to where we can have victory. So I'm not going to send you out of here feeling bad about yourself. I hope, I hope to send you out of here feeling more energized about what God can do for you. So how are we going to sin-proof our closest concerns? Because that's really important here. Marriage should be honored by all. Our, our past failures must not be allowed to continue to define our future. So from this day forward, husbands, wives, people in here who are planning to be married, because this, this takes in everything here, from this day forward, Plan with the God who won't leave you or forsake you, who will help you so you won't be afraid. Plan from this day forward to live a different way through God's strength. So we make our marriage, we make certain that our marriage, our mate, our sexuality are held in the highest regard. Marriage should be honored by all in the Christian context. We should represent the honoring of marriage. We should be an advertisement to our culture of the excellence of God's plan in marriage. That's what it means to honor marriage. Neither a good marriage nor good sex are accidental. There's a decision to make. We either have a spiritual intentionality about our lives or we will simply fail in this regard. So what does it look like? What's the starting point? The starting point is believing that marriage should be honored. And if you're in a place today where it's, where it's rough, it's not going well, then let's, let's do something better. Because next to God, your mate is the most important person in your life. Not your children, your mate, next to God, your mate is the most important person in your world. That's what it means to have marriage honored. It's not something we just pay lip service to. Oh, yeah, marriage should be honored. Marry, let's, no, no, this is a practical say. Well, how are you going to make it look like it's honored? We actually honor our marriage when we treat our spouse as valued, as treasured. That's the practical step. That's the walking of theology. I can say all I like about, oh, I love my wife and she, she's yielding to my leadership and all that kind of stuff. But the bottom line for God is this. I want you to show me how you honor your marriage. I don't want you just to lip back to me the truth of Scripture and not live it out. I want you to actually value Lynn. I want you to treasure Lynn so that everybody else around you is looking around and says, that guy really honors marriage. That's what we're talking about here. This whole different level, not just the idea of marriage. It's the person you're married to that's being addressed here. That's how we honor marriage. By the way, um, 
as he says here, and the marriage bed kept pure, honor includes a bed undefiled. The point that he's making here is all sexuality outside of marriage is a sin. And the reason I say that is because I'm reading it this way. God will judge the adulterer. That means everybody who does anything extraneous or extracurricular in marriage is wrong. God will judge. It's sin. And that goes for adultery is inclu- adultery expands to pornography, which is really called digital adultery. Pornography is digital adultery. And God, it doesn't please God. In fact, God will judge you for that. So stop it. And then he says, and all the sexually immoral. The only way a marriage bed is kept pure or a future marriage bed is kept pure is to not practice sex outside of marriage. Now, I know right now that there's a a pal of of pain falling on us to say, well, then I've blown it. It's it's over for me. This is what you're telling me now. I, I can't honor marriage. No, that's not what I'm telling you. That's not what God's telling you. God never, ever says that what you did yesterday makes it a done deal for you. The simple truth is we have a God who picks us up from where we are and if we will trust in his grace to forgive and throw ourselves on the mercy of God, he will pick us up and dust us off because part and parcel of the God who will not leave us or forsake us and will help us. He means exactly what he says. He will help us with the scars that don't seem to heal. Because in reality, we are called to champion reproductive rights and God's grand binary design for companionship. We are, we are called to be so proactive about our marriages and the product of our marriages. It bothers me that our prime ministers hijacked the words reproductive rights to mean abortion because God means it to be something entirely opposite to that. In Genesis 1.28, we are given reproductive rights. Go and be fruitful and multiply. We are not... A baby is the blessed result of a healthy sexual relationship. A baby is not to be destroyed as a result of a sexual relationship. And so we are called to honor marriage. But we are called to fight Satan with sexual satisfaction in our marriage only. That's why he goes to the bed undefiled. There are two things that will crush your marriage. Two ways because of our brokenness. And the one is your past sins 
or the sins that you bring to your future marriage. These have the power to crush your marriage unless you throw yourself at the mercy of God and you talk together about the scars that won't heal and are crushing your sexual relationship and threatening your relationship, your marriage, because of what you've brought from the past. And that past might be two days ago or two weeks ago. And unless you have a healthy sexual relationship in marriage, a marriage bed undefiled, you will not be able to experience the honor that you're to have in marriage. Your past sins must be faced. And in this faith that we have been given, Christ's power to heal includes grace to heal scars so that you can go on with tremendous health from this point forward. But the second thing that will crush our marriages is sexual starvation. Satan is looking, listen, listen, Satan wants to ruin marriage. It's a big deal for him. It is the core value of society. It is the visual of the covenant-keeping God. Satan is at war with our marriages. He doesn't play fair. He will do whatever it takes. And he's looking for whatever wedge he can get at. at. And 1 Corinthians 7, Paul warns the Corinthians, look at you better make sure you have a robust, healthy sexual life in marriage. Because if you don't, Satan will wedge his way in and it will cause sin to come into your relationship. An unwillingness to satisfy the hunger of our mates is driving people to look for, el- look for sexuality el- elsewhere. I am not for one second endorsing that or excusing it, nor does God. But beloved, would you listen to God? Would you listen to his word? Pay attention. We don't starve each other at the dinner table. Why do we think that starving each other in the bed makes any sense? It doesn't. Martin Luther said two times a week, we'll keep the devil away from him. I throw it out there for your consideration. Do not allow the corruption of this world to destroy our marriages. Make your marriage healthy and robust. Honor it. Seek forgiveness. Trust in the grace of God by faith to help you. And then love each other with passion. And then finally, he says here, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Sin-proof your wallet through financing greater love for God. We're not to love money, we're to love God. We can have money, we're not to love money. Because if you love money, you will not love God. Simple as that. I didn't make that up. That's what Jesus said. You can't love God and love money at the same time. 
One will get shuttled out of your life. It has to. Use money to buy more love for God in your heart. That's what you do. That's what we're called to do. This whole idea is contentment. And he ties it all into faith. Contentment with what you have. What do we have? We have a God who won't leave us or forsake us. We have a God who promises to help us that we won't be afraid. We have a God who says, what can man do to you? I'm with you. That's what we have. Instead, we love money. And by the way, we get very touchy on this subject. Man, I, I can tell you, when, when I start talking money, it gets very touchy. And, and it shouldn't be touchy. You know what we're touchy about? Things that really matter to us. And if you're touchy about money, it matters too much to you. I'm telling you right now. You can be touchy about your kids. You can be touchy about your wife. You can be touchy about Jesus. But if you're touchy about your money, you love your money too much. And you are in danger. The antidote to this is contentment. If you want to move the gospel forward in your life, you increasingly have to pay attention to your wallet. It'll interfere with your movement toward God. You have to put your money in its place. It has no place in your heart. Don't love money. It's said over and over again in the scriptures. It has no place in your heart. It's just utilitarian. It's what God gives us that we might, that it might enable us to serve him with all of our hearts. And he regularly comes and says, I want my money back. And he has every right to do that because it's his money. When I come to you and talk about 90 for 90, I'm not talking to you about your money. I'm talking to you about God's money. Because all that you have belongs to God. Because all that you have came from God. Because all that you have, you couldn't have if God didn't give it to you. And unless we come to terms with this as Christians, we're always going to be criticized. It's pathetic evangelicals on the TV evangelist ministries getting the idea that God is something about money. If you give more money, Jesus will love you more. That's horrible. Evangelicals should be criticized for that. The blatant love of money presented as the gospel is a curse of our age and disgusts the rest of the world that doesn't have much money is to be given for the purposes of God. I love to ask you for money. You think I don't like asking you for money? I love asking you for money. You know why? I don't love asking for money for me. Of course not. I love asking you for money for God's work. It's a blessing to give to God. It goes to your account. It, it, it further weans you from your love of things so that you will love God more. Give me more opportunities to ask you for money. I have no problem with it at all. But I'm not asking so that you can have more money. I'm asking so that you will have less love for your money so that God will, God's program will be advanced in your life and in the life of, of, of the church globally. You know, we live in a day and age where people are, are distrusting leadership. And, uh, and, and I thought to myself, you know, it's important that we don't promote something here, don't... don't uh, represent ourselves here as leaders as if we're, we're something different than what we really are. Particularly when I saw the stats of plummeting trust in pastoral leadership. 
So I want you to know that I'm not talking to you about something that our, our team, our leaders, are not practicing in their own lives. We, we are also intentionally weaning ourselves from the love of money and investing in the things of God. The leadership here, we, we have the capacities now because of our, our database to, to easily categorize things without knowing anything about anybody or any names or anything. You're all categorized in various different things. We know who's in DC groups. We know who isn't in DC groups. We know who the leaders are in DC groups. We know all of this stuff. And, and so uh, we decided that we better check out and make sure that our leadership is leading in the area of loving God and not loving money. Our DC group's leaders involve pastors, deacons, ministry staff leaders, and, and a few other ministry leaders. The average annual gift to this church, which doesn't mean any, it, it doesn't take into consideration anything else that's invested in the world. The average gift of the pastors, ministry leaders, staff here, deacons, and other leaders is $9,300 a year. That, that's leadership that is expressing a generosity to the things of God and a starting point of saying, this is what it takes to move and advance the cause of Christ. The so leaders here aren't telling you to, or aren't inviting you. That's the average gift of that group of people. I, I, I had the privilege this week of, of meeting with um, Phil, Phil Gibson, brought um, the new Canadian chair, uh, uh, um, Canadian director who's from America, but he's going to look after the, the Greater Europe Mission Agency here. And we got talking about a lot of things, and, and uh, we got talking about, um, about just the, the, the church in the world and the different hearts that are existing. And uh, many of you remember a few years ago when the Olympics, the Summer Olympics, where were they? The Summer Olympics were in Rio, was it? Were they? Was it Rio? Am I, am I losing my mind, or is it? Yes? Yes, the last time. Anyway, they had a big project of, of reaching, of, of taking people, Greater Europe Mission, taking people and, and evangelizing at the, at the um, Olympics. And uh, there's a group of pastors from Cape Town, Africa, the shanty town of Cape Town, Africa. Anybody ever been there? Okay, I've been there as well, just a couple of years ago. Don, this is where Don Sayers ministers, a missionary here. The shanty town of Cape Town is the poorest of poor. I mean, you, can't, you can't imagine it. You have no idea. A group of pastors there, pastoring in the shanty town, decided that, that God had laid on their hearts that they should go and minister in this Olympic uh, challenge, this outreach uh, from the shanty town, but they, they have nothing. And, and so this, this uh, John Gilbert is his name, and his wife came over from the U.S. They had a session with these pastors, and they said, look, we'll, we'll teach you how to, how to fundraise, North American style. Nothing wrong with it, but so these guys listened very politely and heard all that he said, and, and they said, you know what, okay, um, we'll, we'll get back to you in the fundraising thing. So they went to their churches. And they told them of the gospel opportunity. These are the poorest of poor. And they said, uh, we, have no, we have nothing, but they said, we, pastors, we want you to go. We believe in this all of our hearts. So they went back to the, the director of GM and they said, this is what our fundraising plan is. Everybody, everybody, everybody in our churches 
have committed to skipping a meal every day for a year because in some places in the world they love the gospel more than anything else. They love Christ more than anything else. Skipped a meal every day for a year and produced the tickets to go and evangelize at the Olympics. Brothers and sisters, we have some work to do in North America, in the North American church, in the areas of our marriages, in the areas of money, in the areas of our relationship of care with each other, for each other. So there's all kinds of theology that we've learned, but now it's time to take that theology and have Christ change our lives and our relationships. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we ask you today, if you wouldn't do a powerful work in us to embrace, to embrace the work that you've called us to. You've called us out from a self-absorbed world to live a Christ-driven, sacrificial life. Loving one another, caring for one another. Honoring our marriages. Not loving our money, but giving our money away that we might love you more. It's in the way. So I pray, oh God, that we would take the responsibility for the practical of what it means to be a blood-bought, Christ-exalting, grace-driven follower of Jesus Christ. I pray in his name. Amen. It is very easy to make a practical sermon just something we listen to as well and don't do anything about. So let me just, I jotted down a couple of things that I think are important for us, sort of fill in the blank things that I put out as a challenge for each of us in these categories. In the area of heart expanding care, I need to work on blank. And I am going to do blank for blank as soon as possible. A neighbor, a, a brother, a sister, a co-worker, heart-expanding care. In the area of my marriage, I'm going to immediately do blank as an act of honor. And blank as a tactic to sin-proof the sexuality of my marriage as an act of weaning myself further from the love of money, I will invest blank more dollars per week in the work of God in 2018 over 2017. We'll post these on our website under the sermon notes so that you can jot them down yourself. I put them out as a challenge for me, for you. I'm, I'm going to do this challenge. Let God speak to our hearts about the practical of our theology. Do we believe that Christ will never leave us? He will never forsake us. He will help us so we don't have to be afraid to fill in the blanks. Our Father, I thank you for your awesome grace to us, your patience, the fact that you've promised, oh God, to heal us and help us, forgive us. 
dust us off, pick us up, put us on our feet, and advance the cause of Christ from this day forward in our lives. It's up to us to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And I pray that we would as a group here, as a congregation, as a company from the same womb, oh God, may we love each other in Jesus' name. Amen.